Thank you very much, Laura. Let's pray together. Father, we know you have loved us. You displayed that love in so many ways. We do love you. We want to be sensitive and responsive to you. We desire to live well for your glory. We desire to be hearing, understanding, and living your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hypothetical question. If you knew the end of the world was coming within the next year, how would you live? What would you do? If you knew you had three or four months to live, would you change your lifestyle from what it currently is at the present? Let's read together 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Keep in mind, Peter is writing to believers who are going through persecution. The persecution was not coming from the government. Persecution was coming from maybe a neighbor, maybe a co-worker, maybe a family member. And the persecution was coming because they were living in sensitivity to the Lord. And as Peter writes in chapter 3, he had raised the question, who is going to harm you if you do good? And then he says, you still possibly might be harmed, you still might possibly go through persecution. And he said, if that happens, be ready to give an answer to those who ask you the reason of the hope that you have. And the reason there can be hope, and there's a will, reason there's a willingness to suffer for obedience to Christ is because... Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death, but he was raised from the dead. And then he has gone into the heavens and he's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And in that context, he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves... He should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Paul, at the beginning of chapter 4, talked about suffering. And he encourages them that they had spent enough time living as the pagans did. And he mentions a number of sins, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And unbelievers thought it strange that believers would not you know, participate in those lifestyles any longer. And Peter says, remember, God's going to judge. 
In these verses, verses 7 through 11, Peter continues to reshape his reader's self-understanding in Christian terms by providing an eschatological perspective for living out their faith in Christ. That is, living in view of the end of all things. Throughout the New Testament, as here, teaching about the future is offered as the lens and the basis for how believers in Christ are to live in the now. What one believes about the future shapes today. A belief that the future is full of hopelessness, despair, and futility becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when people live today as if that future were true. On the other hand, hope in the future is meaningful and assumed, produces confidence to live each day with that future in view. In this passage, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, Peter is bringing to an end a major portion of the scripture that began in chapter 2 and verse 11, where Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As he wraps it up, this section of Peter, he follows the same theme that you're here, but you're an alien. You're a stranger. And he offers a doxology as he does in a number of other books. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. But Peter begins verse 7 with a statement of fact. He says, the end of all things is near. The statement may raise questions in our minds. How could Peter make such a statement 2,000 years ago? But yet the end has not come. How should we be understanding the statement, the end of all things is near? Try to explain that. Peter makes a bold claim about the future, a claim that is intended to shape the behavior of his readers. The end of all things is near. The word order in Greek places all things as the first word, emphasizing the comprehensive sweep of Peter's statement. The brief statement is nevertheless interesting. The conjunction the indicates that this passage is loosely connected to the preceding thought where Peter talked about judgment. Even if society judges the Christian gospel to be undesirable or irrelevant, everything will be judged in reference to the resurrected Christ. And that judgment is near because the resurrection has already happened. And he discussed that back in chapter 3 and verse 19. Therefore, the Christian is to live in light of the nearness of the end, as it is defined by Christ's resurrection. One implication of this truth is that Christians are not to be rooted in this world, 
as a description of them as visiting strangers and but as visiting strangers and aliens. In chapter 1, Peter had already mentioned your strangers in the world. In chapter 2, in verse 11, he said aliens and strangers. In chapter 4, 1 through 6, he again emphasized that. The believer's sense of value, self-worth, and identity are to be rooted in a future hope in which they now have been born again. How then is the end to be constructed? While modern readers may immediately think of the end of the world, the range of the word telos suggests that we're not dealing with a mere termination but referring to a last process or last stage. The last stage of a process as well as its outcome or goal. Because of the resurrection of Christ, Peter's hearers are living in the last stage of God's great redemptive plan. And the goal of that plan is being realized. The end is near signifies the final stage of that redemptive process which leads to its consummation in the return of Christ. These last times indicates the final stage in God's redemptive plan, inaugurated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So Peter is not talking about one termination point. He's talking about a stage, a period of time that would have, if you please, began with the resurrection of Christ. In verse 19, he was put to death of chapter 3, in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, but made alive. Christ died, but he came from the dead. And then in verse 21 and 22, chapter 3, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers and submission to him. Peter is saying to his hearers, you are living in the last stage. Whether they were surprised that the end did not come during their lifetime, we don't know. But we too are living in the last stage of God's redemptive process. It is no more or less true that the end is near today than it was when Peter first lived. Lay aside the point in time as a return of Christ in this passage. The end is near. This whole stage, this whole process would have began, if you please, with the resurrection of Christ. And he says the end is near. It's referring to the process and time. 
see the final stage in God's plan. The resurrection of Christ communicates the end is coming. See it as a process, both directions, not a point in time. When Peter says the end is coming, he is not referring to a point in time. He's talking broadly. There's going to come a time when the end will come. It will actually take place. But dealing more with, again, a period of time that would have began, as you look at the flow of the passage, with the resurrection of Christ. So the resurrection having taken place, the end being near, Peter encourages his hearers, as well as us today, to think rightly, to think clear-minded, to persist in the love for one another, to be gracious and hospitable towards fellow believers without complaining, and to serve one another with the gifts of grace you have received. And we want to go back to verse 7. Therefore, be clear-minded. In view of the end being near, and what he stated in relation to the judgment in verses 5 and 6, he gives a command. Be clear-minded. Be self-controlled. The Greek focuses on the idea of sober-minded. The NIV uses clear-minded and self-controlled. The idea, the meaning is be of a sound mind, of a right mind, of a humble mind. In light of the end being near, be sober-minded, clear-minded, self-controlled, of a sound mind, of a right mind, of a humble mind. Peter gave similar exhortations in chapter 1 and verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. In chapter 5 and verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. To live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry shows one is out of his mind or out of her mind. It can be illustrated by the one who remains in the swimming pool during a violent thunderstorm. We would say they're out of their minds. It can be illustrated by a driver who continues to go down the road 55, 60 miles an hour And there's all kinds of deep potholes in the road. We'd say they're out of their mind. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Don't live as you used to live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, crowsing, and detestable idolatry. But be clear-minded, sober-minded, self-controlled, of a sound mind, of a humble mind. Don't live as people 
lived and mentioned in verses 3 and 4. But live in light of the fact that there is a giving of an account to God and the end is near. Seeking to make some application to our world today, sound mind, all kinds of things said about sexuality in our country. Thinking, sound mind, God's image for his glory as it relates to sexuality. Marriage, all kinds of debate on marriage in our country. One man, one woman. Lust, leisure, pleasure in Christ. Please God. Sensuality. A lot in our world just uh, appeals to the senses. Focus on God, more is empty. Idolatry, technology, media, entertainment. We're complete in Christ. Those items will never satisfy. Idolatry would be wrong. Technology, media, and entertainment can be used, but yet they cannot satisfy whether living in Peter's day or living in our day today. Have a sound mind, a sober mind. The result of having a sound mind, he says, is so that you can pray. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. The purpose of being of a sound mind, of a clear mind, of being self-controlled is not to prepare a sound defense against one's critics. Rather, it is to pray. The knowledge that Peter's hearers lived in the final stage of God's redemptive plan, Peter says, should motivate prayer. Not a complacent fatalism. Well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so who cares? Nor should it result in a strong defense of one's position. Nor should it move one to abandon their responsibilities and their responsibilities with each other and within society. Rather, it should move one to pray. Now think about these people who are going through difficulty and facing persecution. It's so easy to not pray. Dealing with a difficult government, a difficult slave owner, a difficult mate, all because of your faith, may be easy to get consumed with them rather than to pray. There's a strong movement in evangelicalism today that the world is coming to an end. Therefore, let things go to pot. That is, don't care for our planet, social issues, and so on. We'll be exiting soon. Let the planet go to hell. Who cares about the government? 
Peter wanted them to live well. He already talked about response to one's family, husband and wife. Talked about submitting to governmental authority, submitting to one's master. He talked about putting aside deceit, malice, envy, slander of every kind. But also, there tends to be, I think, in our culture today, in America, far too little concern about prayer individually, as a family, in marriage, for church leaders, and for local church, and for ministry. We'll run our children to all kinds of activities. Do we pray with them? Couples will have date nights and do things together. Do they pray together? We'll read our Bible. Do we pray? We have music concerts, but do we have prayer concerts? We have services with preaching and music but little prayer. Pastors will spend years being trained how to handle Scripture, but not get one course on prayer. Ministries for all ages, but not prayer for all ages. We've had music wars for a number of years in churches. What kind of music to use? But we're not fighting over prayer. Are we being sober-minded when we neglect prayer? Peter is exhorting his hearers. The end is near. Be clear-minded, self-controlled so you can pray. And I think very applicable to us also to be committed to prayer. As we pray, it's not getting what we want or what Peter's hearers wanted, but asking God to help us as we obey him. Submitting to his will, his desires, not asking God to bless his plans. And as we submit his will, Expressing for his help. So Peter's hears as they are praying. They pray about, how do I live as an alien and as a stranger in this world? Lord, you told me to live as an alien and as a stranger. I need wisdom in how to do that on my job or with my neighbor who is criticizing me. I need wisdom and how to live as a living stone. In light of chapter 1 and verse 22, Lord, we need help and guidance in loving one another deeply. My neighbor's being persecuted. Fellow believers are being persecuted. How do I love them? With grace. Lord, in a society that is full of deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. How do I live well? 
I know it's your will for me to put all these sins aside, but how do I live well? Lord, I'm going to uh, leave my family and I'm going to go to work for my owner. He's mean, he's nasty. Lord, I'm asking you for grace, the understanding on how to live well as I work for this nasty owner. A wife crying out to God in prayer. Lord, my husband can be difficult at times. He criticizes me because I've come to faith in Christ and many times he destroys me verbally. I want to be clear-minded. I want to be sober-minded. And I'm asking you, Lord, it's your will for me to live a godly life before him, to have a gentle and a quiet spirit and to zip my lip and not argue with him. How do I do that? I need your grace. Lord, I'm crying out to you. Lord, yesterday, a neighbor asked why I live and respond the way I do and the way I treat my wife. I don't treat her as a second-rate citizen. I treat her as an heir of of the gracious gift of life. And I've been criticized Lord, how do I answer my neighbor today and just say, I treat my wife differently than the average man because I'm a Christian. Come to faith in Christ. I know you want me to answer, Lord. You already told me that. I need help. Peter is not exhorting people to say, Lord, I made these plans, now bless them. He is exhorting them. Here's your will, Father. I need your help and your guidance to live your will day by day. Nothing wrong with making plans, that's not my point. But living out what God has designed. The end is near, be sober-minded Clear-minded, self-controlled, so you can pray. Think about church. Think about marriage. Think about family. Think about individuals. We're living in the last stage. The end is near. Pray. Pray. Have you ever heard of someone calling the pastor of the church and say, Pastor, I'm I'm deeply, deeply concerned. We sing in church, we have a sermon in church, and we have a couple short prayers. 
Why don't we pray more? Be self-controlled and clear-minded so you can pray. He's writing to groups of believers. He's not writing merely to individuals. As a pastor, I can, I say, get away with this since I'm speaking of pastors. Pastors can get together. They can talk about a lot of things. But say, let's get together just to pray. A little different story. Think about marriage. A husband and a wife. Living in Peter's day or living today. Praying together. Concerning their day-by-day living. A family getting together just to pray. Along with visiting and so on. Prayer. In light of 21st century Christianity, the end is near being clear-minded and sober and praying. We respond in a couple ways. Rapture soon, the end is near. Fatalistic, I'm exiting. The result of that is neglecting to care for God's creation and wise living. Neglecting wise daily living. Or, the end is coming. Let's fight. Let's defend. The result is many teaching, exhorting us to reclaim America so that we can go back to our founding values. And I'm not opposed to that. But too strong of a focus has a downside. The end is coming. Withdraw. Withdraw from meaningful relationships in the job and neighbors and so on. Peter seems to be communicating. Yes, the end is coming. I'm not talking about a point in time, Peter's saying. I'm talking about the time period since Christ's resurrection. So in light of that, be sober-minded, self-controlled, so you can pray. And then he talks about love, which we'll address next week. From my very limited perspective, I have a deep, deep concern in what I would call the evangelical church, that prayer is being moved further and further to the back burner. We emphasize apologetics, which is fine and good. Bible teaching, which is fine and good. Music, which is fine and good. Political involvement, which is fine and good. But I hear less and less about the importance of prayer. 
We will send a pastor to four years of Bible college, to three years of seminary, maybe more than three years of seminary, to handle Scripture well, and that's good. But in those years of college and seminary training, it's rare if there is one course on prayer. But yet the apostles in Acts chapter 6 said when they were running out of time and so on and caring for widows, said we want to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of God's word. So I as a pastor may spend 10, 15 Hours in preparing a sermon. How much of that time is prayer? I'm not answering that for you. I don't keep track of how much time I pray. I pray. But how much time, I'm not sure. I'm deeply, deeply concerned. We talk about programs. We talk about methods. We make product, Christian products available. But we're not very often talking about prayer. People want a program, a method. Over and over we hear about music and what style music should be used in the church. (coughs) They'd be fine. But how about prayer? Pray for and with your wife. Pray for and with your husband. Pray for and with your children. Pray for and with your parents. Pray for and with your family. Pray together as a body of Christ. For a number of years, quite a few years, we have encouraged people to be prayer warriors and get information on how to pray, trying to act on this portion of Scripture along with others. Let's just pray. as we live out our faith in our day-by-day living. I'm not talking about adding, we're going to add another service just to pray. I'm talking about in our services, we strive to pray. But as families, as individuals, pray about living out what God has already given to us to be living as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents, as employers, as employees, as citizens, for God's glory.